Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was beautiful. Good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And as you're finding that... Uh, let me tell you just a little bit of a heads up on our plans this summer. We have been working our way through Hebrews, this glorious Christ-centered letter in the New Testament. We're taking a little pause in Hebrews this summer, and we are, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 this morning. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. Next Sunday, the first Sunday of June, we're going to look at communion, what communion means. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, this beautiful text on communion in uh, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And then the following Sunday, we're going to start a short summer series on encountering Jesus in the Gospels. We're going to look at a few different scenes in the Gospels, uh, selected passages, encounters with Jesus about what Jesus has to say about the things that we face in the Christian life. And uh, Reuben's going to preach, and Tyler, and Robert, and myself, we're going to kind of tag team that. And then, Lord willing, in August, we're going to get back into Hebrews. But for this morning, we're going to look at the thesis statement, I think, of the all-important letter of Romans. A couple years ago, we worked our way through Romans, and this morning, I thought it would be a good reminder for us with the children in here and uh, thinking about as we get ready to get into a summer to think about the most important thing in the universe, which is the good news of the gospel. If, if there's one thing that I think has has been the, the, the most primary reason, other than just God's grace, obviously, the primary reason for any fruitfulness from the life of this church over the last 18 years that we've been a church has been the, the persistence that we've had as a congregation to keep the gospel of first importance, to remember the gospel, to, to build our lives and our church and our ministry and everything we do on the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is not just something that you start with in the Christian life. It is the whole of the Christian life. And so on this Memorial Day weekend, as we get ready to get into, Lord willing, a summer of relaxation and recovery or whatever it is for you, I think it would be good for us to just rehearse and remember and renew the truths of the gospel for ourselves this Sunday. And on that note, praise God for our country. Uh, we are gathered here to worship the Lord, not America. Uh, America is our home, at least most of us, and we're thankful for it. It's a fallen nation, but it is a nation that God has ordained. And so I just, I'm thankful for America on this Memorial Day weekend, and I'm thankful for men and women in uniform who have served us well and have laid down their lives in defense of this nation. So praise God for that. And praise God for a congregation that is full of people that have served or are serving uh, our nation. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Let me pray and let me read the text. Let me read the text, actually, and then let me pray. And I want to give you four points from this passage about the gospel. Uh, this is the thesis statement of the most important book, probably, in the New Testament. And I say probably because that just feels a little, a, little, uh, a little weighty to say it's the most important book. But I really think it is. But anyway, the most important book in the New Testament, Romans. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come to this text that surely many in this room are familiar with, I pray that you would, uh, that you would help us to go deeper in our understanding and, and deeper in our appreciation and gratitude of the greatest news in the universe. For those that may be here this morning that's never really heard the gospel, maybe children that are gathered here this morning that are are approaching that age when they can understand these truths. Lord, would you cause the light of your grace to turn on and would you make us as adults in the room hearty as our children may squirm a little bit. May we thank, we, we thank you for our children. We thank you for a church full of children. And as we look at this text this morning, Lord, stir our affections for Jesus. May you deepen our worship And may you cause any hearts that are dead to become alive by your grace. And I pray that you do this all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to give you four truths about the gospel. And this will will take up our time this morning. The, The four truths are this, and we're going to give it to you right at the beginning. First is that the gospel is news. The gospel is news. You can see it on the screen. The gospel is news. Secondly, the gospel is powerful. Thirdly, the gospel is inclusive. And fourthly, the gospel is exclusive. So first, let's look at truth number one here, that the gospel is news. Primarily, the good news of the gospel, which is what really Romans is about, really the burden of Romans. If you're ever reading through Romans, I want you to always have this in the back of your mind. Romans is Paul's most thorough explanation of what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. And underlying Romans is this great dilemma. And the dilemma is, how can a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous and still stay righteous? How can, in other words, how can God not sully or decrease or hedge at all his holiness by calling sinners to himself How are these sinners who have proven time and time again all through the history of the Old Testament and up until Paul's day who've proven that they cannot do anything in and of themselves to obey God and to serve God and to be reconciled to God? How does God make the unrighteous righteous? And that's the burden of Romans and that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's news. It's a proclamation It's an exclamation of what God has done to make the unrighteous righteous. So the gospel, if we're thinking about it, it's not something that we do. It's not principally calling us to do anything, although we must respond to it. And we'll we'll look at that in just a moment. But it is first and foremost an announcement of something that has already happened. Something that God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. And so implicit, just implicit in understanding the gospel is understanding why it's necessary. And it's necessary because of sin. We have sinned and we have separated ourselves from God. 
The Bible is really, really clear about this, that our greatest problem is not that we are leading less than optimal lives or not that we are not all that we can be, but that our sin, which we all participate in as human beings, every one of us except for Christ, we, it has rendered us spiritually incapable, spiritually unable, in fact, totally unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God. So implicit in the whole Bible, and certainly implicit in any explanation of the gospel, is this built-in dilemma to the Bible, is how can sinners be reconciled to God, especially when those sinners can't do anything, they're unable to do anything, they are depraved, they're dead. This is the way the Bible puts it, they are dead in their sins and unable to make themselves right with God. And so the gospel is news, it's an announcement, it's a statement of what God has done in Christ to rectify that situation. So what is that news? Well, let's just look at it briefly. I want, I want you to think of four words. Four words. They're not on the screen. I just want you to have them in your brain. They are incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. First, incarnation. The, the beginning of the good news of the gospel is that God sends his son, Jesus. He, he becomes man the second person of the Trinity, and I don't have time to get in the beauty of the Trinity, but God is three in one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's a great mystery, but it's a truth that we see in scriptures. And the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in the greatest mystery of all, becomes a man like us. He takes on the likeness of sinful flesh yet is sinless in every way and lives a perfect life. He, where all of us and all of our ancestors have disobeyed God, Jesus, as a true, full human, completely obeys God and lives a perfect, sinless life. We've been going through Hebrews. It says that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. He understands us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. But he does it in such a way where he experiences everything that we experience. He faces everything that we face. Yet he does it perfectly and sinlessly. So in his incarnation, God, the Son, becomes God the man while he stays and always has been and remains God truly God and truly man. And then incarnation, now second word, crucifixion. Jesus lays down his life on the cross. This is the, the beauty of the crucifixion. This is the very center of the Christian message. This is the very center of the message of the gospel, is that God the Son, in his perfect life, in his perfection, in his obedience, then lays his life down willingly on the cross. And this didn't happen to him. It's not like the Roman emperor did it or the Jewish leaders did it. In some sense, in human means, they did bring this about. But it was God who put forward, God the Father, who put forward his son, Jesus, God the Son, on the cross. God put him forward as a sacrifice for our sins. 
to be our substitute. And Jesus, the perfect one, fully God, fully man, complete, perfect, sinless obedience, lays down his life on the cross, and he's crucified. He dies as our substitute on the cross. Jesus dies. That's the heart of the good news is that Jesus dies for our sin. He pays the penalty. He takes away. He absorbs. He extinguishes. He satisfies the, the, the punishment that should have been ours on the cross. He forgives our sin. Our sins, the penalty for our sins are forgiven. But not only that, Jesus is, and this is just so glorious, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' obedience Jesus' obedience to the Father and complete, perfect obedience to the law of God, all of that righteousness that he accrues in his life of obedience is given, is transferred to us. So our sin on the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, our sin is transferred to Jesus. He takes it away. He removes it. He extinguishes the penalty for it. It's gone. And then he gives his righteousness to those that will trust in him, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So on the cross, the incarnate God, fully man, lays down his life, extinguishes the punishment that should be ours, and gives righteousness to his people. And then, he doesn't stay in the grave. The next word is resurrection. He gets up in victory over sin, death, and the grave. Jesus rises Again, he is alive. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he rose in victory over it. And you may say, well, why? why? Okay, I, I get that, but why was the resurrection necessary? I mean, Jesus atoned for our sin on the cross. He took away our punishment. He gave us his righteousness. Couldn't he have just gone straight to heaven in a sort of spirit form? Why is the resurrection necessary? Well, it's necessary because it is the full reversal of the curse of our sin. We were meant to dwell with God as creatures, as humans, fully alive. But sin interrupted that and death came as a result of that. And Jesus hasn't just paid the penalty for that. He has fully reversed the consequences of the curse of our sin and has restored us not just in right standing with God spiritually, but physically one day with the Lord forever. So his resurrection, Jesus' full and final defeat over sin, death, and the grave is the full reversal of the curse of our sin. And then the final word, ascension. Jesus doesn't just become a man, incarnation. He doesn't just die a death on the cross, crucifixion. He doesn't just rise again in victory over it, resurrection. But he ascends. He ascends at the end of the Gospels to the right hand of God where he is presently reigning and ruling over all of the universe. So nothing that happens before his resurrection, before his incarnation, nothing that happened during his life, and nothing that will happen ever in the future is outside of his providence, sovereign hand. He is ascended at the right hand, the king of kings, the lord of lords, ruling over all things. And he's not just ruling and reigning over all of the universe. And this is stunning, but he is, according to Hebrews chapter 7 and Romans 8, interceding or praying for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that he daily lives to make intercession for 
the saints, for the people of God. So that's what God has done. He has sent his son. So sin was the problem. How are these sinners that are unrighteous, who are sullied, who, who cannot be reconciled to God because he's holy, how will they make it to heaven? It's because of what God has done in Jesus, sending his son down to become like them, bear their penalty, and lift them up to him. Think of it this way. Uh, every, uh, every, every religion, I want you to think of two letters. I want you to think of the letter, just picture in your mind the letter N, lowercase N, and lowercase U. Okay? Religion, religion is like an N. Think about the bottom of the N. You have to work your way up to God, and then he'll come down. That's every religion in the world. Work your way up to God, and he'll come down. But the gospel is like a U. God comes down. We can't come up to him. God comes down to us and brings us up to him. That's the difference between every other religion and the good news of the gospel. Religion says, work your way up, and maybe God will come down. Whereas the gospel says, you're dead in your sins. There's nothing you can do, but by grace, God comes down and brings you up to him. So what has he done? He has sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, to defeat death through his cross and his resurrection and is now ascended, reigning, ruling, and interceding for his people. But how? Back to our main text, Romans 1. All this is just news, but this news is not just what God has done, but how, listen to this, but how we might make it ours. And he says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in verse 16, he says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what Paul is talking about there in verse 17 is not the righteousness of God in his character, in his holiness, although certainly that's true. God is utterly and exhaustively and indescribably holy and righteous. But what's in view in verse 17 is not the righteousness that God is, but the righteousness that God gives. And how does it come? How does this salvation, how does this righteousness come? It comes to those who believe in verse 16. And it comes in verse 17 from, by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. So the righteous live by faith. So how does this news, so the gospel is not just the proclamation of what God has done, but what makes it so good is how it comes to us, not by our works, but by grace through faith in Christ. He, he justifies us through faith. And so now the gospel is available to all who will trust in Jesus, the good news is not work your way to heaven, but believe, believe in Jesus, trust in him, have faith in what Jesus has done, and you too can be saved. And before we move on to the, the next one, and the next three are going to be much quicker, let me just do a couple just points of application here. You may, you may not yet be a Christian, and you may, you may be thinking, gosh, this, this just sounds like really, really, 
this, I mean, this, this sounds like scandalously good news. Really? You mean it's not based on anything that I do or any righteousness that I bring to the table, but on God alone and what he has done? That just sounds crazy good. I know. That's, that's, that's it. That's the, and unless you're sort of blown away by the scandal of that, by the freeness of that, by the goodness of that, by the grace of that, I don't think you really get, unless you're almost kind of strangely embarrassed by that you've stumbled upon this pearl of great price, this amazingly good news, you, you may not truly get the depths of it. I know, you have to be kind of like, really? Really? Yes, really. It's that good that God would do this for you. So that's for you if you're not yet a Christian. Secondly, just a, a little point of application for you. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, friends, the, the, the good news of the gospel is not, hear me, it's not merely this, this little important point. As glorious as it is, it's not just merely the aspect of the gospel that your sins are forgiven. And so now somehow you have escaped eternal punishment. But it is that God in his kindness loved you, not because of anything good in you, but because of his glory and his grace. And he has promised to bring you all the way home. You know, Jesus, the, one of the important things about Jesus' resurrection is that it is a guarantee. Jesus getting up from death, getting up from the grave is a guarantee that you too will be raised in the newness of life and you will be glorified with him on that day. And so part of the good news of the gospel for people who are trusting in Jesus is not merely that you sort of escape God's wrath, but the promise of reconciliation and joy and eternity with him forever that he guarantees as he gives you his spirit, he indwells you. And it means that no matter what you're going through in this life, it is merely bringing you all the way home. God is in you. God will not give up on you. He will finish the good work that he's begun in you, and he will bring you all the way home. And your guarantee of that is because Jesus got up from the grave. It's kind of like uh, a soldier who's being pinned down by enemy fire, knowing that although he still has to fight, that he will make it home, that he will make it home. And that's really encouraging. The gospel is new. Secondly, the gospel is powerful. Now, if you're a thinking person, and I hope, I hope you are, you may, have, you, may have, you may have developed a kind of question and tension or you may have thought about this before. Okay, Brad, I get the news of the gospel. We're sinners. We're dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. He's holy. This is what he's done in Jesus. He's sent Jesus to become a man like us. I get that. He has faced everything that we faced. He's laid down his life. He absorbed God's wrath. He removed it. He rose again in victory. He ascended. He's in heaven now, ruling and reigning. And he's even interceding for his people. But the way that a dead sinner, don't miss this, the way that a dead sinner makes that his or her own is through faith. 
How does that, how does that you happen? It's at the bottom of that you, faith meets us in the bottom of the depths of our sin and our spiritual death. And by faith, we become united to Christ and we are his. Now, now you may be thinking, okay, I see that. But you see, if you're seeing this tension, you're really, you're really at a good place because you realize that there is a bit of a dilemma here. How can these unrighteous dead sinners have faith? I mean, there's, they're dead. They can't even, they can't do anything. So do we do it or does God do it? Well, let me answer that by just showing you a couple of scriptures. And here's the second point. The gospel is not just news. But it is powerful news. The gospel's powerful. I want you to see, and we won't take the time to read them, but I want you to see the way God works. Not by first cooperating with his creation, but by doing it himself. In Genesis chapter 1, there was nothing. God spoke his word, and there was everything out of nothing. There's this wonderful chapter in Ezekiel chapter 37. I encourage you to read it this afternoon or sometime this week. It's this vision that God gives the prophet, and it's a vision where he's standing before a valley of dry bones, which was representative of Israel in their spiritually dead state, and I think is representative of every person who has ever become a Christian who is dead in their sins. They are dead. We're like a valley of dry bones by nature, by, by just being humans, we are born dead in our sins. And God tells this prophet Ezekiel to prophesy, to speak, to in a sense, in an Old Testament sense, preach the gospel to this valley of dry bones. And he does that. He starts to speak God's news to this valley of dry bones. And what happens in Ezekiel's vision These dry bones start to grow flesh. They start to come alive. What is this a picture of? Is it just some strange Old Testament story? No, it's meant to be a shadow of the way God brings dead sinners back to life. The word of the gospel, the news of what Jesus has done, hits the dry bones of our hearts, and it starts to make us alive. What's a New Testament example of that? John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend. He's dead in the tomb. The King James Version tells us, and we love this, I love this language in the King James. It wants to emphasize to us that Lazarus wasn't just in a coma or that he was some sort of out in some way or that he was barely alive. It wants to be sure that we understand that Lazarus is dead, that it tells us that he, his flesh is decomposing. And what does decomposing flesh do? It stinks. And in the King James, it says that he stinketh. He stinketh. He stinks. He's dead. And Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he speaks his news to him. This is a kind of picture of the gospel. Jesus says to Lazarus, get up. And how does Lazarus, who's dead, who is unable to agree with what Jesus is telling him to do, how does Lazarus, how does he receive and hear the news that Jesus has told him to get up? By the power of God. By something that is totally outside of himself, 
God gives, listen to this, God gives what he commands. He creates what he commands in the heart of Lazarus who's dead. And Lazarus who is dead is made alive. And now Lazarus who's been made alive is enabled to hear and trust in Jesus. And part of that new life that God gave Lazarus in the news of the gospel makes him alive. And now he is enabled to have faith in Jesus and respond to him and believe and get up. Okay, Brad, you say these are stories. Give me a better, more thorough explanation of how this happens. Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you're from Cross Point and you're not familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, you've been sleeping on me. You've been sleeping on me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. This is, I think, the clearest, most ground zero explanation of salvation in all of the Bible, how it happens on a personal level. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that Satan, that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's everybody. What does that mean? That's just so clear. Come on. You cannot misunderstand that. It means that no matter how seemingly good you think you are, or no matter what kind of family you came from, no matter what, we all start in the same starting place. We are dead in our sins. Maybe we were born in an irreligious family that knew nothing about God or religion, and we sort of acted out in an obvious public way. Or maybe we were born in a good church-going family, but we were still born by nature, dead in our sins, and we're dead, we're dead. And then verse 4 is what happens to everybody if they are reconciled to God, if they are born again. God must perform this miracle in every human heart, whether they grow up in a Bible gospel preaching church or they grow up in a family far from God. Verse 4 must happen, and this is the explanation. This is the theological explanation of what we just read in Ezekiel's, or we just referenced in Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones and Lazarus' resurrection in John chapter 11. How does it happen? How does a dead person, here's the dilemma, how does a dead person ever get the faith that they need to believe in God and be reconciled to him. He tells us, verse 4, but God, but God, what does he do with this dead person who can't do anything? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by Grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that we are saved by faith and that faith is a gift of God, not a result of works. So what happens? We're dead. God, the, the gospel hits our hearts in a sense. Think of it this way. Ezekiel starts to preach to the valley of dry bones and something happens. Think of yourself as like John, or Lazarus, dead in the, in the grave in John chapter 11. Jesus comes and he preaches the gospel, and the powerful gospel, the good news, hits the dead human heart, and something happens. God, not because of anything in that person, but because of the great mercy with which he has in his love for his people, makes 
us alive. And with that new heart that is now alive is the gift of faith that then that newborn heart then trusts in and believes in Jesus and clings to Jesus and says that my hope is in what Jesus has done, not in what I have done. That's the power of the gospel, to save sinners. That answers the dilemma. How can a dead person, okay, I see, I see what Jesus has done. I know he died on the cross. I know he atoned for sin. I know he's resurrected. I know he's ascended. But how does that come to dead sinners? By God's complete grace, by his grace of regeneration. He makes dead hearts alive. And how does he do it? Through the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is so powerful that when it hits a dead, sleepy, uninterested, rebellious, sinning heart, it has the power, when God intends it to, it has the power to save. The gospel is powerful. So here's just an application before we move on to the next two very quickly. Friends, no one is beyond saving. Everybody's dead. Everybody's born dead whether you grew up in a church family or not. The gospel still must come to your heart Dead hearts must come alive, and they come alive by the power of God. So that means nobody's beyond his grace. Nobody's beyond saving. There's nothing that you have done that can make you more of a candidate or less of a candidate for God's grace. God saves dead hearts. Nobody's beyond his grace. No loved one that you have been praying for, no rebellious teenager that you have been praying for is beyond God's grace because dead is dead and God resurrects the spiritually dead. So that's for evangelistic purposes, but what about just for your own heart? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your salvation is all grace. You were dead and now you're alive. Nobody struts into the church. Nobody struts into the assembly of the righteous. Nobody struts into heaven and says, man, aren't y'all glad I'm here? We were all saved by grace, by God's power. He did it. He did it all. And so therefore, we all have equal reason to praise God and be humbled before the glory of our great God and his glorious salvation. The gospel is powerful. Thirdly, quickly, the gospel is inclusive. Notice what Paul says. He says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, we don't think, we just think, oh, yeah, well, of course, God loves everybody. That's kind of the default mode of the modern American person. But that was a scandalous statement to uh, a Jew in the first century. He, he loves the pagan. He loves the Gentile. He loves the, the unbeliever, the people who, at least in a covenantal sense in the Old Testament, weren't part of the people of God. Yes, for everyone who believes, for the religious and the irreligious, for the seemingly righteous and the people that are obvious public sinners. The, the gospel is inclusive. The Bible is full of unlikely candidates who receive God's grace. The gospel is for all who will call upon his name. And don't get caught up in that tension. Come on, don't do this. God is beyond our comprehension. In one sense, we are completely dependent upon God. I love this tension in scripture. In one sense, we are completely dependent on God alone. 
for his salvation, for him to save us. But in another sense, the Bible is full of exhortations for dead sinners to call upon him. So I want you to be backed into that corner, and I want you to see that there's nothing in you or nothing in a dead heart that can commend you to God, that your only hope is God and that we're dead in our sins, but to also call, to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what he does. He backs dead hearts into the corner to where they have nowhere else to turn but to say, God, you must do it. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you find yourself here this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian and you've heard these truths and you say, wait a minute, I'm completely dependent on God to give me a new heart. What if he doesn't want to give me a new heart? Or what if I'm not one of the people that he has determined to give a new heart to? Friends, don't waste your time on that question. Do you hear the gospel? Are you aware of your sin? Do you realize that you need a savior? Friends, that's evidence that the spirit is putting flesh on your dry bones. He's giving you a new heart. Don't, don't, don't. Don't waste time in these philosophical seeming contradictions from a man-centered point of view. Trust in the sovereign God who is wholly other, who in one sense is completely inscrutable to us, who says it's all me, but you must believe right now. Believe if that's you. The gospel is inclusive. The gates of heaven do not have people that are pounding on the gates of heaven saying, let me in, let me in, but you won't. No, the real picture of humanity is that all of us are running away from God, and God in his loving kindness saves a great multitude of people, Jews and Greeks, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. All, anyone, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is nothing between any sinner and God except for their own hard heart. Will you turn and trust in Jesus? You will be saved. The gospel is inclusive, but the gospel is also exclusive. It's exclusive. What do I mean by that? In one sense, all are welcome, but there is only one way, and Jesus is that only way. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except but by me. And this exclusivity of the gospel is Jesus is the only way is a strange, beautiful kindness of God. Because now there's no mysterious scale. There's no multitude of ways. There is only one way. And it is Christ. And it is the grace of God to make this plain. That Jesus is the only way. Here's three questions to end. Do you believe this good news? Do you believe it? I think you must. I think it's our only hope in life and death. Second question. If you believe it. Do you live from it? Is this daily our cry? Do we remember this? Is this our hope that we will make it all the way home? The gospel is not just this little fraction of the message that our sins are forgiven, as glorious as that is, but that Christ dwells in us and he is resurrected and he will bring us all the way home and we will stand before him one day reconciled. Do you live from that? As you're in the foxhole fighting against your own remaining sin in this broken world around us, do you live from the hope and the beauty of the gospel that is yours now. Third question. First two, let me just repeat them. Do you believe this good news? Secondly, do you live from it? And thirdly, if so, who in your life needs to hear it? Who in your life needs to hear it? Would you tell them this good news this summer? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. 
Lord, if there's somebody in this room that has heard the gospel for the first time, would you awaken their hearts? Would you cause them to go from death to life? Maybe a young person, maybe a teenager, maybe a mom or a dad or somebody well into their years who just for some reason has up to this point not had ears to hear, but today you gave them ears to hear. Lord, if that person is here, would they not leave this room today before they find somebody that they know to be a Christian and tell them that they are trusting in Christ today? And Lord, for the rest of us, oh Lord, pity us if, if this becomes mundane. Pity us, Lord, if, 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 if this somehow is seemingly like rote in our lives. May we be a church that doesn't forget the gospel, that doesn't take the gospel for granted, but that loves the gospel, that lives from the gospel, that is daily amazed at the gospel. Lord, let this be the case in my life. Lord, please make me freshly amazed at your grace in my life. Let it humble me and let it fill me with hope for my own life and the evangelization of this city around me. Lord, do that, I pray, in us those of us that know you as we worship you in this final song. In Jesus' name, amen.